Good morning, everybody. Colin Morgan here, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Grind, where I speak to some of the world's most insightful and successful people five days a week. The goal of the show is simple, to show you how these people think, act, and the steps they took to get where they are, to hopefully inspire some of you listening to follow in their footsteps. This show is for people who want to learn, who want to grow and develop, and who are willing to lay it on the line and grind for what they want. Welcome, everyone, to The Daily Grind. Hey everyone, if you're listening and a fan of the show and you think this show can benefit more people, then please just do a simple act for me. Hit that subscribe button and leave me a comment and review on either iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. That simple action can get this podcast into more ears and making a bigger impact. Now here's a little taste of today's episode. As I often hear, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. Yeah. And so then I ask, what makes you think you failed at it? Because we believe you cannot fail at it. And people usually say what they thought would happen. Oh, I failed at it because I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't get rid of all thoughts. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I mm-hmm. couldn't keep the anxiety from coming up. Like, you know. And really the way we teach is that what happens is not really so important. How you are with what happens. You know, how much presence, how much balance, how much kindness are you bringing forth toward this moment's experience? That's the training. Today's episode is brought to you by Bulletproof Coffee. Just like the food you put into your body, the quality of your coffee matters. Bulletproof Coffee gives you the mental edge and energy you need to thrive. Crappy coffee can sap your energy, hurt your performance, and give you that gut rot. This is not what Bulletproof Coffee does. So get started with it today. Go to dailygrindpodcast.com. On the right-hand column, you're going to click the link for Bulletproof Coffee, and you're going to see what all of that hype, talk, and excitement is all about. Again, dailygrindpodcast.com. On the right-hand column, click the link for Bulletproof Coffee and get it started today. Are you somebody who's been listening to the show who has a great idea but just doesn't know where to start? Listen, you need to start taking action. More importantly, not only do you need to take action, you need to have an idea of where the heck you're going. See, if you just go ahead and start something without a plan, then you're going to be in for some big surprises. And that's where the team at Plan to Profit comes in. Contact the team at Plan to Profit today. Get a free 15-minute consultation. And what they're going to do is take all those ideas that you have in your head all those concepts, that big business idea. And they're going to break it down in such a way which is going to make it really easy for you to get started. So again, go to plan2profit.ca. If you're in the U.S., plan2profit.us. Contact the team and take advantage of that free 15-minute call today. With us to share her story on The Daily Grind today is Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is a central figure in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher, and New York Times best-selling author. She played a crucial role in bringing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West and into mainstream culture since 1974 when she first began teaching. She is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller Real Happiness, 
her seminal work, Loving Kindness and Real Love, her latest release by Flatiron Books. Acclaimed for her humorous, down-to-earth teaching style, Sharon offers a secular, modern approach to Buddhist teachings, making them instantly accessible. She's a regular columnist for On Being, a contributor to Huffington Post, and the host of her own podcast, The Meta Hour. Sharon has also been featured recently on The Tim Ferriss Show and Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Today, Sharon really shares some amazing information, insight, and how you can get started with mindfulness practices yourself. So everyone, be sure to grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, and enjoy today's episode. Well, Sharon, welcome to The Daily Grind. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I am fantastic. We are all very excited that you're here with us. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, Sharon, say for the few out there being first introduced to you, just kind of expanding on your intro and touching on a bit more of who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a meditation teacher and an author, and I've been teaching meditation since 1974, so I'm kind of like an old timer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, um, I teach uh, mindfulness techniques and awareness techniques and teach quite a lot of loving kindness and compassion techniques of, of development. So, um, and that's mostly what I write about is the loving kindness start side of things. Definitely. And if you wouldn't mind sharing, like kind of, uh, touching on how you were first introduced to meditation and and Buddhism and and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Well, I was in Buffalo, New York, going to college (laughs) and, uh, and, uh, it was my sophomore year, and there was a philosophy requirement just because there was a requirement um, okay. of various things. And so I chose an Asian philosophy course to fulfill that. And honestly, as far as I can remember, looking back, it was kind of like happenstance. Like, well, that fits nicely into my schedule. Let me do that one. Yeah. And, of course, uh, that particular course really completely changed my life in a number of ways. That was where I first heard that such a thing as meditation existed that it didn't need to be and shouldn't be really tied up in a belief system and certainly not with some kind of dogma that there was actual actual training Mm. for your mind that anyone could undertake um that there were certain techniques there were certain methods and uh, if you did those things then you could become a whole lot happier so i was not very happy uh, and I was, uh, at that point, I was like 17 years old. And um, I uh, looked around Buffalo. There's some some fire got lit inside of me, and I thought, I've got to learn how to meditate. And um, I looked around Buffalo, New York. I did not see it anywhere uh, at that time. And uh, <clears throat> the university had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world for a year. And... Um, I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So off I went. Wow. And it took a while in India to find that kind of situation I was looking for, which, you know, I didn't want to study the philosophy particularly. I certainly didn't want a religious um, affiliation, you know, that uh, practical how-to was really what I was looking for. And, and I finally did find it. And I began meditating in January of 1971. Wow, that's amazing. And, like, Looking back at that now, being in Buffalo, like what what do you think attracted you so much to it? Well, I mean, like many people, I'd had a childhood that was very um, disrupted and full of loss. And uh, like for many people, my family system was one where these things were never really ever discussed. And so 
I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And then I'm sitting in that class and I hear that, you know, first of all, suffering is a part of life. This is yeah. inevitable. It's natural. So that really painful sense of isolation I had also felt, um, you know, on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. That got challenged, and that was an enormous challenge for me because I did feel very apart and cut off and different. And to think, well, suffering is something everybody goes through. Everybody's vulnerable. Um, you know, we don't all have the same degree, certainly, or uh, intensity, but we all are so vulnerable. And, and that is a cause for compassion that we can draw together. We can experience things more with a sense of community rather than isolation and so on. And I heard all that and I knew that it didn't have to be just theoretical. Yeah. You know, and that was really the fire that somehow I knew there was a way that I could make it real. So I went off. So you go off, you go off to India. How long did you spend there? A little more than a year. Okay. <laughs> most people. That's usually my joke about Buffalo, but I won't make it. <laughs> um, so, uh, I did go back to Buffalo after about a year and four months or something, and I did what I needed to do to end up getting two years of independent study credit, and I graduated, and then I went back to India. So that was another year and a half or so when I went back. Wow. So you spent almost almost three years there total. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you decided to come back to the United States. Um, what was that process like for you? Well, my original intention in coming back was – to come back briefly and, you know, get a new visa and Mm -hmm. see uh, family people, you know, people I needed to see and, um, and then turn around and go back to India for the rest of my life because I was so happy being a student and, uh, with my teachers and that sense of discovery. And, uh, it was just amazing. And so I thought, okay, that's it. That's my life. And Mm -hmm. I went to Calcutta to see one of my teachers who was a woman named Deepama or Deepa's mother. That's her nickname, Deepama. Um, and I just wanted to get her blessing, say goodbye to her for my very brief return to the U.S. So I told her I was going back, and she said, uh, basically, when you go back, you should teach, or you will be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. Um, and then she said two things, actually, that were also life-changing. She said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And it was the first time in my life I think I really considered the things I had been through as something that were also of benefit in a way. Um, And she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking. You can't do it. That's going to stop you. And I I left her room. We'd we'd probably call it a tenement and walked down these stairs. And I kept thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. And, And I came back to the States, and as things evolved, we began getting invitations to teach, and then another invitation to teach, and then another. And at some point, I thought, oh, she was right. (laughs) You know, like, I am here. I I go back sometimes, but um, my life is really here now. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, it's just been something that sort of evolved. Like, you didn't have anything sort of planned out, so to speak. Like, you thought you were going to be doing one thing, and then it sort of evolved Mm -hmm. into another. And say for you teaching, yeah, say say for you kind of teaching early on, um, what sort of things were you invited to? Like, what sort of people were you working with? Uh, The first place we started teaching, (laughs) this was me, Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in India, um, Jack Cornfield, who was yep. sort of having a parallel life in Thailand while Joseph and I were in India, uh, and a couple of other people who had all been in India, 
um, we, you know, we had nothing. We we're just like sleeping on people's living room couches and so on. And the first place we taught, uh, Joseph was teaching a class at Naropa Institute. This is 1974. Okay. And Naropa in Boulder, Colorado had just opened its doors. It was its inaugural summer. Um, and Joseph was teaching uh, something, and actually Jack was there teaching as well. That's where we met, all of us. And um, I stayed on for the second summer session to be kind of Joseph's teaching assistant, and then we got an invitation to teach a retreat. So retreat was the format that people who had been to Asia were really used to. You know, okay. uh, you go in uh, the doors, you know, and you come out like 10 days later. <laughs> okay. Seven days later. I mean, you don't have to not go outside. You can go outside, but uh, <laughs> you don't leave the premises, you know, and – and there's some routine, you know, well, retreats are different, but the retreats we have now, the Insight Meditation Society, they're mostly silent. Um, you speak to the teacher or, you know, certainly you can talk to a staff person, but you're not having social conversations you know, over meals or whatever. And so uh, it's a very intensive, immersive experience. And, and it was all there was, there were really no classes, you know, and so when we were starting to teach in the West, we just replicated that form. And uh, it was all retreats. If you wanted to learn how to meditate in this style, it meant a retreat. And retreats then were usually nine or ten days long. Okay. So people who are being first introduced to this, say, um, like what would your suggestion for some of these people be? Would it be to immerse themselves in it, like in a nine, ten-day thing? Or, or what are some of the things that you would suggest? Uh -huh. I mean, you don't really have to. you know. And yeah. also these days, they're, you know, they're – day longs, there are weekends, there are, you know, and there are apps and there are books. And For there, sure. You know, I mean, there's so many possibilities. Then there was really just that. And, um, you can find the form that fits your lifestyle and your needs. I think for me, the most important thing is that somebody have a sense of a method with some confidence. They have an idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and most methods evolve over time. So it's, you know, not just once understanding it, but over time. And then the most important thing I think is really um, knowing what to expect and what not to expect. Because these days, I mean, the old days, you know, 1974, mm -hmm. uh, five, six, if you, you know, if I was at a party or some social situation, somebody asked me what I did and I said, I teach meditation, people would often like kind of sidle away, like, Ooh, that's weird, you know? Yeah, for sure. And these days I often hear, oh, I tried that once I failed at it. Yeah. And so then I ask, well, what makes you think you failed at it? Because we believe you cannot fail at it. And people usually say what they thought would happen. Oh, I failed at it because I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't get rid of all thoughts. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I couldn't mm -hmm. keep the anxiety from coming up, like, you know? And Really, the way we teach is that what happens is not really so important. How you are with what happens, you know, how much presence, how much balance, how much kindness are you bringing forth toward this moment's experience? That's the training. And, you know, so maybe you have sleepiness and instead of vigor, you know, and maybe you have lots of thoughts instead of none. It doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, and so, so many people try meditation and they, end up just punishing themselves because they're having really unfair expectations. And so whatever form that's going to work for you to get that clear, whether it's reading a book or going to a class or, you know, signing up for an online course or doing an app, you know, that's what's really important. 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, since I've started, and I'm a very a much a beginner at this, but I've started mm-hmm. to practice it or try to practice it more and more. And the one thing that I found at the beginning was I had a very difficult time sitting quietly with my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like they almost scared me at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I did it, the more I became less afraid and it almost became more of a, a healing process for me. Yeah. Where the more I became sort of present with myself, the more I began to understand myself more and accept myself. And by doing that, it's really changed my perception of a lot of things. Oh, yeah. And I think it's really, you know, um, it's not uncommon what you're describing. It's mm-hmm. very beautiful, you know, what you're what you're describing in it. It's like people have to make a reasonable commitment to try it out. It's like an experiment. Yeah. And it's a little unfair to yourself also to say, well, I tried it once. I failed at it, you know. Um, But the commitment needs to be reasonable. So I often ask people, what do you think you can do? And maybe like one friend said to me, I can do 10 minutes a day for a month. And I said, great, that's it, you know. And someday if you can't find 10 minutes, do three, but do it every day. Um, and don't try to do four hours a day either, you know? Yeah. Uh, and with that commitment, cause it's pretty reasonable, maybe you can make it through the month and then you assess and evaluate. Is it worth continuing? Yeah. It's like anything else. It's like people listening, say who are starting a business, you're not going to go and try it one time and then quit. Like it's, you have to be consistent with it. And in the same mm-hmm. thing, you're not just going to try to start a business in one day. Right. You have to realize it's those incremental steps which will lead to more of a bigger thing for you. And the more you do it, um, like for me, the more I did it, same with like changing a diet, so to speak. If I got myself away from eating chips and started eating, you know, almonds, it kind of mm-hmm. sucked at the beginning. But the more I did it, the more enjoyable it became. And then you don't want to go back to the chips. Right. And then there's, you know, the mindfulness component of that because if we – eat the almonds, you know, without paying any attention to the taste. They're not very fulfilling. So, right. <laughs> you know, and then it, it's, so it's kind of learning to be present with what is that really changes everything. And, you know, when you started teaching, did you find it difficult at the beginning to get through to people? Or is this something that was sort of like a learned skill for you? I'm not thinking getting through to people was difficult okay. because... Um, still those were the days where you had to have strong motivation to want to be there. Okay. Yep. You know, it wasn't like you saw it on a, um, sign in the subway, which someone told me just the other day, you know, <laughs> come meditate or something, you know, with a beautiful poem and, you know, it wasn't like that. And so you, you had to be pretty strongly motivated. You know, maybe this was your only vacation if, it, if you're doing a long course and, uh, I also have had fun conversations with uh, psychiatrists and business people who say, you know, when I started meditating, I couldn't tell anybody I was doing it. You know, it was just like, it was so weird that it was just my private thing. And now they're bringing meditation teachers into the office, you know, (laughs) it's really different. So uh, people were ready. I mean, my biggest problem in teaching in the beginning, I had two. One was everyone was older than I was. So I kept thinking, you know. What do I know? But I didn't know the methods and, you know, how to yeah. do it. And But my really big problem was that I was petrified of public speaking. And the format of the retreats <coughs> has always been that people practice during the day and there's teacher contact, questions and answers and things like that. And then at night, there's one formal lecture. And hmm. 
Um, the first retreat that Joseph and I were invited to do was a month-long retreat in California, and I could not give a single one of those talks because I was petrified. Wow. Um, and what I was afraid of was that my mind, I would be talking and my mind would just go totally blank and I would sit there like, I don't know what's happening, <laughs> you know? Um, so this went on for months and months and months and months. People used to yell at Joseph and say, why won't you let her speak? Why won't you let her have a voice? <laughs> he would say, I'd be delighted if she would only say something, you know, like I'd have a night off. No doubt. Um, but, uh. You know, really, months went by, and then I thought this was long before I had had the chance to do intensive loving kindness practice. Okay. But I knew about it, you know, and I'd done like a tiny little bit of it. So I had the thought, you know, there is this one topic, loving kindness, where there is a guided meditation. So that might work because when I'm talking about loving kindness, and my mind totally goes blank, and I launch into the guided meditation, maybe nobody will notice. You know what happened? Yeah. So then I, I only could give one talk, which was on that topic. And I have piles and piles and piles of cassette tapes at home in, in Massachusetts of that one talk, and uh, <laughs> which is good, sort of career-wise, but I didn't know it then. And then um, one day, also a long time later, I thought, you know, all those presentations, those evening lectures, they're all about loving kindness. They're about connecting. Yeah. They're about caring for people. They don't want me to see my expertise and, you know, to show off my expertise and sort of uh, bore them with, you know, extensive details. They want to know we're together, you know, and that they want some energy to be able to continue on the next day in their practice. And, um, you know, it's all about connection. And from that time on, I could actually give talks. Yeah. And then fast forward. Now you've you've released a book a little while ago called Real Love. Yeah. And uh, it's obviously been accepted by people amazingly. People are buying the book and they're really getting a lot of insight from it. When did you decide for yourself that, you know, you needed to kind of get these thoughts on paper and out to the world? Oh, well, my first book was called Loving Kindness and that mm -hmm. came out in 1995. And that was a pretty slow process. Um, I didn't have confidence in myself as a writer. Um but I was kind of specializing in loving kindness meditation by yep. then. And um, uh, I finally just tried and you know, it worked. And then there was the book. And since then I've written um, several books, uh, Real Love being the most recent. And, and it's kind of fun, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same topic as loving kindness, which was all those years ago, but yep. it's certainly akin to it and to sort of relive um, that realm of insight and, you know, what do I really believe now? And uh, it was really a nice process. A hundred percent. And then obviously you had mentioned that now businesses, which obviously businesses are starting to want to learn this technique more and more. What have you seen in terms of impact that learning these techniques for businesses and say entrepreneurs have had? Well, I've seen a lot of impact, you know, in individual companies and, yep. Um, in a really heartening and, and beautiful way. Um, you know, uh, one company I was in recently, I'd only been one time before, and so this was the second visit. And just to hear how, you know, something had happened and something, all these things went wrong, and they were actually using the tools, you know, in a time of a lot of pressure and, and adversity, uh, I thought was great. You know, one of the things about work is that sometimes our greatest happiness is a sense of meaning which can also mean connection. 
You know, it mm-hmm. it's not necessarily in the job description every day that we're going to find delight, you know. Um, but having some sense of meaning about our work is, is very important, as well as having some sense of connection with others at work apparently is important um, for for happiness and so on. And so um, I've seen that sometimes people, you know, get a lot of fulfillment out of a, a differently managed phone call, for example, you know, yep. without flying into old habits and uh, just reactivity and, and really listening in a different way. And, you know, there's so much about connection every day that can really enhance our sense of meaning. Yeah, 100%. And I suspect that, you know, yourself, you're not really money driven or money focused. But one thing I was kind of interested in asking you is like, what is your you know mindset towards money? Well, I, you know, I don't know that I'm not that money focused. I'm really not so money yeah. focused. But I mean, I feel kind of sense of balance. Long ago, somebody taught me this exercise where um, they said, you know, do you really want a lot of money? And probably you don't. You don't want like green bills piled up everywhere. <laughs> you want what money represents to you. Yeah. You know, freedom, leisure time, security, uh, w- you know, whatever it might be. And then they taught me this exercise, like say, well, is there another way you could actually get that? Hmm. You know, um, or feel that. Is is money the only way? And, and that was just kind of interesting, you know, because I wouldn't disdain money. And I look at those studies that say, there is a baseline, you know, below which it's so hard. Yeah. Um, but do I feel like I need, you know, uh, billions? No, I don't. Um, and if I look at, you know, are there ways that I can have travel or security or whatever, maybe there are, you know, there are other realms of all that. Yeah, it's important, but it's definitely not the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And... For you, Sharon, like one question I I love to ask is like I'm wondering if you could go, say, back in time and and offer your young self <laughs> like a and you could choose the age, but say like a piece of advice or a piece of guidance, like what that would be for you. It would be something like hang in there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> things will get better. <laughs> well, it's such a it's such a crazy world and. You know, I'm glad people are starting to get more, you know, it's becoming more uh, accepted. Like there's Headspace out there, which are different Mm -hmm, apps and mm -hmm. people are starting to embrace it more. Like I was recently at a school and one of the teachers, um, she did a little bit of like a two minute Headspace thing. I'm like, that's so cool to do with kids. Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) And, you know, it helps so much. And and, uh, and the kids sometimes help their parents, you know, they tell these stories like, I, you know. I went home and my mom was really upset and I just told you, you've got to breathe. <laughs> so important. So, and I learned like for myself, I learned breathing when, when my parents put me into yoga lessons. I was in private yoga lessons when I was a young kid, so oh. when I was uh, playing, playing golf and uh, it helped me so much, but then I kind of lost touch with it. And now I have it more back incorporated in my life. And I'm just like, this simple art of just being able to calm yourself down through just a small breathing technique is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. And, you know, Sharon, like being as though like money doesn't drive you, like what motivates you? Like what gets you out of bed every day and sort of like fires you up to do what you do? 
I think it's actually these days it's probably the simple things like trying to make someone's day better, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I really honor the simple things. Um, and I, you know, I need a certain amount of money too. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. Um, you know, so, uh, but you know, I, I really do. I notice for myself, of course, you know, like if I have to call a customer complaint about line about something, you know, how that person responds to me makes a difference in my day. Mm. And, uh, you know, so if I'm having to listen to somebody complaining about something myself, then I remind myself of that. You know, there's actually a, almost an honorable way of being here in this moment. And certainly there's a kind way of being here in this moment. And that's what my day is about. I love this. There's so much to learn, and obviously we don't have a ton of time, but what I'd like to end it off with, Sharon, is sort of, you know, we've heard a lot today. You've shared some stories. We've, you know, we've touched on a lot of different topics. I always say, say my audience, they they listen to this, and they remember, you know, bits and pieces, not the whole thing, but they can go home with one thing or, or one thought. What would you want that one thing or one thought to be? Oh, I would say if you if you want to explore something and pursue something, you really can do it. Hmm. That's amazing. And what is the best way, Sharon, that our audience can connect with you, um, learn more about what you have going on, maybe some books that are coming out, et cetera? Uh-huh. Well, uh, the website is SharonSalzberg.com, so it's very simple. Spell check will usually try to change Salzburg to be spelled with a U, but it's S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. That's amazing. Everyone, that is Sharon Salzberg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. That's right. .com. Be sure to check it out. She has a lot of amazing things on the website, um, the new books that are coming out, a blog that she does. And as you can see from this interview, everyone, success today is driven by passion, hunger, and today having a better understanding of yourself. Everyone has to overcome obstacles. Everyone has a story. Start building yours today. Today, we had the chance to speak with the amazing Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and joining us on the show today. Well, thank you. Sharon, it was an absolute blast. And everyone, if you liked today's episode, if you could just please hit that subscribe button, leave us a comment, share it with your friends. Until next time, everyone, Colin Morgan signing off. And always remember to keep on grinding. Yeah.